Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 26, 2014. This is episode 1321 of the Survival Podcast. And to make up for some missed episodes, I'm continuing to uh, give you guys multi-part episodes. Today we have a whopping four-parter, though some of the parts will be kind of small and short, but stuff I thought you'd like to hear about. Today we're going to talk about Bitcoin again briefly, just uh, right after I released the show yesterday with John Bush, which I thought was phenomenal on Bitcoin and what Bitcoin can do. The IRS came out with a ruling saying that Bitcoin was property. I'm going to tell you why the response to this is basically, well, duh, no shit, we already knew that. And uh, why it is not the big catastrophe that people seem to be running around going, the sky is falling, chicken little, uh, 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 just calm down, calm down. Man, there's so many things in life to be more upset about than this. Anyway, next up, a little bit more on permaethos, not a permaethos infomercial, but some questions have come up since my big announcement yesterday that I'm going to answer for you. Then some homestead updates. We've got some stuff going on here I think you'll want to know about, some that's just cool, including uh, how our population grew by 12 just this morning and what our plans for some other things in the future are with living things and the kind that actually move around, not just plants. And then we will bring on Matt Miller, who will be talking about DIY vehicle maintenance and developing that skill set. So we have a monster episode for you guys today, as promised. Before I get into the episode, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Survival Gear Bags. Born and bred right out of the TSP community, run by the awesome Kelly John Doe. He was in the fulfillment industry and uh, was on our website very, very early in the back in the day, so to speak. I think his uh, forum ID number is a double-digit number to give you an idea how long he's been around. Known as Cart Pusher on the forum, uh, he decided, well, since I'm in the fulfillment industry, maybe I can put together some group buys for members of the forum. He did that. It worked out. He thought, hey, maybe I can turn this into a business. Next thing you know, Kelly is running Survival Gear Bags with great gear and great bags to put that gear in. Check them out today. Remember, you get free shipping at Survival Gear Bags, and MSB members always get a discount over there. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original, the first, the Numero Uno Survival Podcast sponsor, Numero Uno, because they were just first, first people that stepped up and said, Jack, we like what you're doing, we believe in what you're doing and we want to sponsor your show. So early, in fact, that I had to say, not yet, Vic. The Gruntala wanted to do things before I was ready. That's how much he believed in what we were doing. I didn't feel good taking their money until we had a more established listener base, and we had things set up and ready to go for them. We built the entire sponsorship model on Safe Castle Royal. They are awesome. They've been with us now over five years. Most people can't tell you you know, a handful of podcasts that have been around five years let alone a sponsor of a podcast that's remained loyal to them for five years. We breed loyalty here in our listeners and in our sponsors, so reward that loyalty with Safe Castle. Check them out next time you need something for your preps. They pretty much have everything you could need, and they are such huge supporters of what we do. They give away their discount membership. It's a lifetime product. It costs $49. People buy it every day. If you're an MSB member, you get it for free. On the MSB discounts, how about Terroir Seeds, 10% off all their seeds? They are a great supplier of niche and hard-to-find seeds and really high-quality seed uh, with the extensive germination testing and uh, 
all the kind of all stuff that you can uh, save and keep and, and uh, develop your own strains from. Check them out today. Uh, Terroir Seeds, you will find them in the MSB discount area, the benefits section of your MSB, 10% off all orders. On that note, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. You get great discounts like we talked about. You get over $150 worth of free eBooks the day you sign up. And, uh, again, it's just a way you can help support the work we do here at TSP. On that note, yes, those of you who will be taking Jeff Lawton's PDC to be released on the 29th, that is Friday, I do have a discount for members of the MSB. $100 off his course. More on that in a bit, but I've been asked so many times, I figured I'd throw it in here as well. Uh, I want to tell you real quick today about some other parts of our community, the TSP community. Um, I think a lot of times people lose sight of how much is available. One is our forum. Our forum is amazing. If you've never been on our forum, check it out. Just go to the Survival Podcast and, and click on Forum and consider joining. Uh, the Survival Podcast forum is just an amazing group of people. The knowledge that's available on the forum is extensive beyond anything you can possibly imagine. It's very well run and ordered by our team of moderators there. We run it as a republic. We have a constitution we call the Terms of Services, and everybody that's there agrees to be there under those rules, which is basically be nice to each other, be cool to each other, and don't spam. And that's about it. Check them out and, and post the right stuff on the right boards. Don't go post your gun post in the farming board. They won't get mad at you. They'll just move your post, and you won't know where it is. Uh, the Zello channel is amazing. It's like two-way radio for your smartphone or your computer with a microphone and speakers. Uh, that You can just connect with people right away. TSP Wiki is awesome. That's where I read you the history segments from, but there's so much at TSP Wiki. And you can go over to TSP Wiki, sign up for an account, and you can help add to or edit content. At the TSP Wiki, it's really easy. We even have an area there with videos that show you how to edit everything if you want to be an editor at our Wiki. Uh, Walking to Freedom Forum. If you're looking to find a new home, if you're tired of the oppression of your state, lowercase s, and you want to find a better state to live in the Republic, Walking to Freedom can help you out. 13skills.com, where you can develop your skill sets like we're going to talk about today. Permaethos.com, where you can learn about more about the Permaethos community we're going to talk about today. TSP has become a massive network of sites and communities, and I invite you to find the ones that work best for you and be part of them. With that, let's get into our history segment real quick before I get into all the other stuff. The year is 1321 because the episode is The Chilling Aftermath of Famine. It has now been seven years since the Great Famine had begun with a volcanic eruption that most people in Europe still don't know about. For some in Northern Europe, the Great Famine will drag on past 1321. Certainly the aftermath will be chilling. Winters will be colder and longer. The Baltic Sea will be solid ice this winter. They won't see any real recovery for another seven years, even though the torrential rain part of the environmental disaster has abated. Droughts will now become a problem. In the past, the manor system of farms attempted to project future yields in grain, meat, and milk production, but they have stopped making predictions. They have no idea what the future holds for them, uh, and they know they don't know. Guys, I want you to think about what that means. There is no business, and farming is a business, there is no business in the world in any time in the history of recorded records where businesses don't attempt to project what they're going to do this year. When, when you have the manor houses, uh, the manors, um, making projections in their logbooks for how much grain, milk, meat, etc. they can produce, that's a forecast. 
All right? It's a business forecast. It's just like if you're a salesperson and you're working for a company of any size, they're going to have you run a forecast. All the deals you're working on, what percentage of chance you think you'll bring them in, and therefore you get an aggregate average, and that tells you, you know, what your forecasted revenue for the next quarter or next year is. And uh, every business under the sun does this, even back in 1321. Basically, what the people running the farm said during 1321 in this crazy, cold, wet, cold, dry weather, they just kept changing is, we don't flip and know. We have no idea what's going to happen. It's not even worth writing it down anymore. Now, put yourself back in a place where food doesn't come from the store. And think of how scary that must be. And then realize we're no different than them. We're no different than them. We have packaging and stores and trucks and highways and fancy gadgets and technology that separate us from the same reality they faced. But it doesn't make the reality any less. Major crop failures in the world could be just as bad or, frankly, worse for us today than they were for people of the time. At least people of the time largely knew how to fend for themselves when the systems failed them. We have billions of people in the world today with no idea how to take care of themselves. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So let's get into uh, the meat of today's show now. Let's start out with the IRS ruling. So as soon it was almost like I hit publish, and then the email started coming in. Jack, Bitcoin is in trouble. The IRS says it's property, not currency. Which I met with a resounding, well, duh. So here's the basic, here's what the IRS has said about Bitcoin. And I'm going to tell you why anybody that's running a business that's taking Bitcoin through a merchant account has already looked at it this way and been running their accounting this way. Because they don't want to go to freaking jail. And anybody with a basic understanding of accounting would see that what the IRS has put out is actually fair, reasonable, and consistent with IRS code. Now, let me say what I mean by that. I do not mean that I like what they've done. I do not mean that taxes are fair. I do not mean that the IRS is fair. I mean that if you look at IRS guidance on barter and commodity and property exchange, historically, since 1913 when they were founded, along with the Federal Reserve, by the way, all the way up till today, that based on what they've done in the past, what they've said about Bitcoin is completely consistent with their own code and regulations. So therefore, it would be fair as an accounting practice when you're looking at it as a business and saying, what would I expect them to come out with? Is that Hopefully that makes sense. Anyway, this is what, what the IRS has basically said. If thou shalt take thy Bitcoin in, thou shalt report it as income for thy fair market value on the day on which it was received. In other words, if I sell you MSB for a certain amount of Bitcoin, At a U.S. dollar value of $50, I report that as income as $50 in my Coinbase account. And Coinbase has already been sending 1099Ks to people that take Bitcoin in Coinbase, because Coinbase is legit, that have already done just that miscellaneous income uh, reported to the IRS, and therefore it better show up in your accounting. Right? So that means, duh. Right? Now, what the IRS has also said is since it is property that goes up and down in value, If thou takest in thy bitcoins on thy Tuesday, and thy spendeth thy bitcoin on thy Friday, 
And thy Bitcoin has risen in value on Friday when thy spendeth thy Bitcoin, thou hast realized a capital gain. And thou shalt pay on tax unto Caesar for the capital gain. In other words, if the $50 worth of Bitcoin that I took in on Tuesday is worth $60 on Friday and I spend it or wait till Friday to convert it to cash, then I have realized a profit of $10 in addition to the money which I received from you, which was also a profit less expenses. But that $10 shall go into thy category of thy capital gains, which means I will not pay Social Security on it. Did you know that? So, this is just like silver. If thou spendeth with me $50 worth of silver today, and I taketh that in, I am required to reporteth thy to thy IRS, thy chief gangster of the United States of America, known heretoforth as Ira Ramon Sancia, or by his initials IRS, thy gangster is doeth, Taxes on the income of $50, because that's what it was worth when you gave it to me. When I dispose of thy silver through the exchange for other items or through conversion to United States Federal Reserve notes, also heretofore known as space credits, then if I sell that, that $50 worth of silver for $60, I am to payeth thy Ira Ramon Sancia, heretofore known as IRS, a capital gains on $10. Gold is treated differently because it's Treat it differently. We'll just leave it at that. But that would be the same as if you traded me your car. Ah, but if thy would spendeth thy Bitcoin with me, right? And you spendeth thy Bitcoin on Tuesday and it be worth at that time $50. And on Friday, I convert to cash or spendeth thy Bitcoin elsewhere and it is now worth $40. I have taken thy a capital loss. I have taken a capital loss. And therefore, I taketh a deduction from the monies that I do owe to the chief gangster, Mr. IRS. So, that's pretty much how all property exchanges work in IRS code. Um, for large businesses or even small businesses like myself using merchant accounts like Coinbase, this is self-evident and there are other ways to deal with it as far as advantages that this creates for us. And it is self-evident, and it is, duh, no shit, that's how we would have done it anyway, because you're playing with fire if you take in property that's publicly recorded and reported to the IRS and don't do anything with it. For Joe and Jill, who are selling apples across the street from each other, and Joe uh, taketh thy Bitcoin and sendeth with thy iPhone from one wallet to another, it's almost impossible for the IRS to trace. And if they do a few extra things with it, it's, it's impossible. It's just like they spent cash. And they don't have time to go looking to Joe and Jill. They have time to go looking for businesses. So if you're taking this in as a business and you're using a merchant account, you better be doing it right. Now, here's the interesting thing. When I buy a Bitcoin, one Bitcoin is the same as the next Bitcoin, is the same as the next Bitcoin, is the same as the next Bitcoin. It is a value-for-value exchange. It is not possible to say, well, this one hundredth of a Bitcoin is the the one hundredth that came in on Tuesday, and this one hundredth is the one that came in on Thursday. So what's done is an accounting practice with all stock sales, and I said treat it like a stock or a commodity, is a dollar cost average. So if I buy a hundred dollars worth of Ford stock, or I buy Ford at a hundred dollars a share today, and I bought one share to make this simple to understand, 
and tomorrow Ford tumbles to 50 bucks. And I say, whoo, actually that's good. I wanted more, and I buy another $50 worth of Ford stock. I have now paid $150 for two shares, so my price per share is $75. You see where this goes? <laughs> What's going to happen is there's going to be software that will say, here's the aggregate price of all Bitcoin received this year to you. Here's what you paid for it. If you have, you sold it at $50 or you bought it at $50, the software, I mean, it'll be in the back end of Coinbase probably in a couple months. Let me just tell you. And then you can choose when to spend your Bitcoins to absorb losses at your discretion. And you can take up to $3,000 at a capital loss per year. Oh, but this will freak out people. Everything freaks out people. I'm bored with people being freaked out about Bitcoin. I'm really bored with it. The IRS is not going to be able to police capital gains on Sue, Tammy, and Joe that are running around buying gift cards with Bitcoin. And at, at some point, they're going to have to issue a different type of guidance on it. Because there's no way around that. Um, the other thing is, if they make this complicated, they push it into the underground and they get nothing. And the IRS would like your money, please. So I think what's going to happen is the IRS will come up with some level of exemption, probably a couple thousand bucks. You just don't have to worry about it. If you're taking and spending Bitcoin, you just treat it like dollars. And they'll say, for people that are holding over X or realize a capital gain in excess of X, you're required to report the gain. They'll, they'll eventually have to do that because eventually they'll realize this is a lot like our barter stuff, except we could actually get some money out of it. See, right now, if you're a dentist and you barter with a person that cuts hair, you're both supposed to report 100% of the barter as income. Did you know that? So if I charge $100 for an office visit and you charge $20 for a haircut, and I say, well, I'll see your kid for 100 bucks, and then you owe me five haircuts for my kid, for my kids over the next couple months, and we do that, we are both supposed to report that as a 100% income. How much of it do you think happens, and how much do you think gets reported? The answer is it happens a lot, and only an idiot reports it. I mean, seriously. You're asking for trouble by reporting that, unless you're trading some sort of barter credit system or something like that, like uh, an alternative currency like Ithaca Hours or something like that. You'd have to be an idiot, To report that, well, I did X amount of barter this year, and I'm going to pay tax on money I never received. It's just not going to happen. So what will happen with Bitcoin is more and more technologies will be implemented to make it harder and harder to trace, where it's already possible for people with a little bit of smarts to do it invisibly. They'll make new software that will do it invisibly, period, for anybody that wants to. They'll make new systems. If you put your money in here, it's it, it's hidden. We don't report to the IRS. We don't even know who you are. We don't want to know who you are. All we do is provide a shell. Oh, and we're in Malaysia, so we don't give a shit about the United States government. Well, U.S. citizens can't have an account there. Fine. How do you know I have an account there? The people that I have an account with don't even know if I have an account there. It's too late. Like John and I said yesterday, the genie is out of the bottle. And here's the big thing. I know for a fact, a major government is considering either issuing its own cryptocurrency or actually adopting Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency and recognizing it as a currency 
in its nation. If that is done, I should say when that is done, then the IRS can't say it's not a currency. If the United States recognizes the government's vol- uh, the, 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 the validity of the government that does it, and I ain't talking about an Indian tribe, guys, okay? I'm talking about a major nation that has you know multiple high seats on the UN councils. A, a nation with valid uh, diplomatic relationships with the United States. A nation that is not hostile to the United States or European allies in any way, shape, or form is going to do this. And when they do, cryptocurrency becomes a valid currency. You can't say, I recognize nation X, but I do not recognize their currency. And there's at least one country out there that I have pretty... I don't usually have inside information on stuff. But occasionally I do. And there's at least one nation out there that's figured out that fighting this is really stupid and can't work and has decided to become the world's cryptocurrency center of business and open up the world for the use of cryptocurrencies. And when that happens, it's game over. This means nothing to me. This actually changed nothing about what I'm doing at all, even a little bit. All right, next I want to move on to something totally unrelated. I gave you big news about Permaethos yesterday, a new community that we're going to be building in one farm and then doing other farms in fiefdoms, which is where we're going to have situations where people can come in and wolf with us or evaluate our farm and say, hey, I could build an income on your farm. Here's my plan. Here's here's how long I need to do it. Here's the space I need, the resources I want you guys to supply. Here's the resources I can supply. Here's how the revenue will be split. Here's how I'll earn a wage. Here's how I'll earn my keep, and I want to do it. And we'll say no or yes, depending on whether it sounds plausible or not, and whether or not we can give you what you think you need us to give you and how much you want from us versus how much you bring to the table, that type of thing. It's going to be awesome. And... um I said that one of the ways that we're going to get this off the ground is we're going to run an on-the-ground PDC where Josiah Wallingford from Brink of Freedom will be teaching this PDC as it relates to the actual setup evaluation of our farm so that he will be showing you things like when he talks about earthworks where actual earthworks are going in and why so that there's a tangible, real, visual component to what you're learning. This is the theory, this is the application. Never been done in a PDC before. That Because Josiah will basically be teaching this and setting the farm up at the same time, and by the time he's done teaching it over about a three-week period, four-week period, um, it'll be in post-production editing, and at that point, his hands are off, and we're releasing every week uh, you know, one of the blocks. That Nicholas Ferguson of Permaculture Classroom and myself would be doing all the back-end answering of questions. Kelly Heron, who is... Our uh, audio video producer, um, who is amazing, has worked in Hollywood. I put up his IMDb link yesterday so you can see that the, the history this guy has is unbelievable. Um, we'll be actually taking our answers and doing it so when you get to the end of your chapter and there's a question like, well, how do you ensure that your sill is big enough for your swale? For instance, you just have two links, answered by Jack, answered by Nick. Or if only one of us answered that one, answered by Nick. So that the same question doesn't have to be answered over and over and over and over again. And so the future students can come in and boom, there it is, click, bam. And future students probably won't get that level of interaction 
with Nick and I as additional instructors who are also contributing to the content development and the curriculum of the course. Nick, by the way, is an amazing horticulturist. I think I'm a plant geek, and I know all these plant varieties and things. Nick blows me away. He really does. He's awesome. So I, I, I told you about all that, and one of the questions that came back is, can I get on a list? Can I get on a list? There's no list. We're going to launch this on a certain day, and we're taking a 1,000 people into the founders, and we're closing it. Again, we haven't decided a final price yet, but $250 to $300, and this course is worth $1,200. Easy. Then there will be opportunities to further your level of certification with us. So this will be a Tier 1 PDC from Permaethos. You can get a Tier 2 design-intensive certification where you come in with your PDC knowledge and gain that. Right? And there's all types of other things and considerations giving. If you're like, I want to be on a list, I want to send you the money now. There's a couple of things that have to happen. One, we're finalizing the exact structure of Permaethos from a corporate entity standpoint. Uh, and some finalizing some final things on an operational agreement between ourselves and uh, Kevin and Charlie uh, so that we know where we stand when we set this up. So that corporation has to be formed. It has to have a tax ID number, and then I can set up a PayPal account, and then we can start taking your money. So that has to happen before we can take anybody's money because Jack Spirico ain't taking this money in Perma Ethos Inc. or LLC or LLP or S Inc. or what have you will take the money in depending on the final structure we decide on, okay? So that has to happen first. The next thing that has to happen is we have to be close enough with all our dates that we can say with confidence, we expect that, that the first block will be released by X date so that when I'm taking your money, I can commit to you that you will start to be able to take your PDC on date XYZ, right? And there'll be some lag in there, probably 30, 40 days. But that allows us to put that money to use on the ground and get things up and running. Um, so that's... That's how that's going to work. But uh, somebody said, well, what about MSB members? Can MSB members if not, get a discount? And I said, no, I can't do a discount for MSB. First of all, I have to start splitting Ethos and TSP apart. They're going to be one of our many communities that we founded, but Ethos must stand as a business. If TSP went away, they should still function. Now, we will give birth to it. We will support it. We will always be there. But let's say... Two, three years down the line, we have 20 farms running, all kinds of stuff going on. Ethos is growing as its own corporation, has multiple subcorporations underneath it, partnerships with 20 different farms, fiefdoms everywhere. I'm flying on an airplane, boom, flat, crash into the side of a mountain. TSP is in deep trouble, right? There's no one to do a podcast every day. Ethos should just go on. Maybe put a plaque up with my name on it somewhere or something, right? So I have to build it that way. So that's the first part of it. You're not always doing a discount for everything. The other thing is it's to raise money. So if we if we give a discount, we cut the funds we're raising. And we, we, we need to raise as much as we can, honestly, to put us on as strong a footing as possible. And I think we're delivering such a high value, there's no need for a discount. Uh, the next thing is the price is going to go up after a 1000 So we'll take a 1000 in, we'll run the entire course. When the course is run... We'll shut things down for a couple couple months, and then we'll open it back up, and it'll be $50 more than you paid for it. So by being one of the first thousand, you're getting a discount of at least 50 bucks. The next thing, we have decided, though, that just as we said, Ethos founders will get first consideration on everything that Ethos offers. Why don't we do that for MSB members? So what we will do is we'll open uh, the ability to buy a course for the PDC, to MSV members for, let's say, half a day. 
before we open it up to everybody. So we'll give you first consideration. And then Josiah said, well, what about Brinka Freedom members? And I'm like, of course. So if you are either an MSB member or a member of Brinka Freedom's uh, subscription program, either of those, you get first crack. So that, that pretty much guarantees you you're in. And then some people have asked, can I buy multiple seats in the PDC? Some just because I kind of want to support it. But some are like, look, I'd like to actually have a full certification for myself and my wife. Can we both have, you know, buy one, to, you know, buy quantity two, add? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. One more time, absolutely. All right, so all of that, that should wrap up the questions about the PDC. A few people wanted to know, you know, when can I present my business opportunity, you know, to you? Not yet. Please. I just, I can't. I have got to get this farm operational. I've got to get Joe installed there. We've got to find two tenant farmers. That was another question. When are you going to start taking applications for your two, you know, farmers that Joe is going to have working at his side that we're developing to eventually go take over other farms? And one of them probably will take this farm over, honestly. Because I think Joe, within after two years of establishment, is going to want to pick and choose where he goes next. I don't think he wants to live in West Virginia for the rest of his life. So There's a tremendous opportunity there. We think we have one already. We'll get finalization on that soon. I can't tell you how. So we may only have one of those positions available. The answer to when we're going to start taking applications, soon, very soon, probably early next week. I'll put up a form. I have to talk to Joe. Joe's evaling that. You're going to work for Joe, then Joe evals that. I give my opinion. Nick will give his opinion. Kevin and Charlie give their opinion. But Joe really is going to be the evaluator, the interviewer, that's going to determine who that other person is. Um, I will tell you, if you have a PDC under your belt, that's a plus. If you have any actual farming experience under your belt, that's a plus. Um, these positions are not going to pay a lot of money, initially anyway. And it's going to be an entrepreneurial position where you need to be, to be developing yourself into an income-based system because a farm has to make money, not just from selling courses. It has to make money from being a farm. And we have to think about two types of income on the farm, short-term and long-term. I see this as revolutionizing an entire industry in America. We're going to create ways that make it easy for people who want to earn a living from the land to do that. But easy doesn't necessarily mean without a lot of work and a lot of dedication and learning and effort and sweat. But we can do that. And I think that the good we can do is enormous. We are heading into a place where the United States economy is going to begin having more and more jobs eliminated. Not sent overseas, the jobs are being eliminated. People need something to do. People that want to be productive need something to do, and they're looking for a better quality of life, more community in their life. That's what we're going to give them with Perma Ethos. On quality of life, let's move on over to the TSP homestead. And, uh, oh, real quick, Jeff Lawton's PDC is coming up on the 29th. Again, I'm getting you guys a discount. It's $100 off the course. I think he's selling it for $1,000, and it's going to be $900, or $900, it's going to be $800. I don't remember. Um, I've told you what we're doing with Permi Ethos. Jeff's course will definitely come out before ours because it's coming out on, on Friday. We're not Jeff Lawton. If you, if you think you can benefit from Jeff's course, Take it, and if you want to know if you can benefit from it, yes. Um, I actually think different perspectives are great. I personally have taken three PDCs, and basically, even though I'll be answering your questions, I'll be going through this PDC Joe's teaching as a student as well. That way I'll know what he's covered and know how to best answer questions. So um, 
I think you cannot have enough education in this in this sector of society. So those of you that want a certification from Jeff, this is a great opportunity. Once again, this is what I've done. I have been offered a commission. I've been offered basically a hundred dollar commission per class uh, per, per per student. So if I just recommended you you took it and uh, a thousand people took it, right? Um, you know I'd make a hundred grand. If a uh, hundred people took it, I'd make ten thousand dollars. And um, what I've done is said I don't want any money. Take that money and make a discount code and give it to my audience. Um, that's how I try to run things here. I sell my membership, and whenever I'm offered something like that, I always try to negotiate it for you. That's what I've done again. So now moving over to Homestead updates. Um, we have a video that will come out this week that will show you a lot of what we've been doing because, man, do we have things going on. First of all, everything is now green. Now, everything in the neighbor's yards are, are not green. I'm looking out the back right now at my back neighbor, and his yard is brown. My yard is green, and not just patches of green. It is greening up literally everywhere, except in the one west pasture area where the ground is really bad and we drive a lot of vehicles on there when we have classes and stuff that's going to have to be rehabbed this year. Everything else is green. The swales, uh, the cover crops, I was worried about how much cover crop would come in with all the frost we had, are now giant green worms of oat and wheatgrass going you know, 600 feet across the landscape. The place is turning into an unbelievable example of what you can do in only one year. Uh, most of it's just pasture and stuff like that right now, but the the dramatic comparison to surrounding properties in emergent spring grass and pasture is undeniable. And for the little amount that we actually did as far as grazing and all last year, it's well, it's it's pretty unbelievable, and it makes you feel good to know that what you're doing works. Um, Trees that we've planted, the few we've planted, are breaking bud and getting leaf on. I might have lost a fig tree uh, to the 14-degree weather that was planted at a bad time of the year, didn't get to establish itself. We'll see if it comes back from the roots. If not, no big deal. It wasn't that big a tree anyway. My sandbox, yes, I have a sandbox like for kids to play in, is currently occupied by about 200 bare root trees or more that are buried in there. There's another 50, 70 trees in pots. Um, that are all waiting for students to come next week and plant them. Uh, there's chinga pins, there's plums, there's hazels, there's um, mulberries, uh, there's dwarf mulberries, there's contorted mulberries, there's jujubes, um, there are avocado trees here. There are, you name it, we've got it other than citrus, and we'll be adding that later in the year. Um, there are rare varieties of raspberry uh, golden and orange raspberry. I need to pick up some blackberry before the planning workshop. I decided to source that locally because it's affordable and it's right here. Um, it's, it's pretty awesome what's about to happen here with this workshop. But the cool news, the, the really neat news, and those of you that go to the site to get the episode, you probably saw the picture. Our population grew by 12 this morning. Dorothy loves ducks. She thinks they're one of the cutest things in the world. And for a while, we decided that chickens and geese were enough. I have now decided that it's time for ducks. This morning, I went down and bought 12 ducks from Tracker Supply. I don't know what kind of ducks they are. They had three distinctive-looking ducks. They had ducks that were kind of tawny, greenish-brown, with a greenish-tan, uh, greenish-gray head. 
I got four of those. They had ducks that were pretty much like a little tawny yellow, but almost all yellow, uniform yellow color. I got four of those, and they have some that are like yellow and black with lots of black and black beaks and black little web feet. I got four of those, so I got a dozen, four of each main color phase. I'm going to call them mongrel ducks, and we'll see as they grow up. If you've never held a baby duck, I don't care what a big tough guy you are, they are the most ridiculously cute little thing you'll ever see. And they're remarkably agile for being like a day old. When you put a day old chicken in the brooder, it kind of flops around and gets its bearings, and within a day or two it's running around and, and doing pretty well. A goose takes like three. They're just like goofy and duh, and they just can barely, they walk a couple feet and they sit down, and then they eat a little bit, and then they walk a foot and they sit down, and they just look like like Gomer Pyle uh, on uh, coming back from being under anesthesia, is the way a good baby goose looks like, for almost a week before they get their bearings. You put little ducks in there, man, and they fall down and all, but they're just running. They're like a toddler with a big diaper that's not afraid to fall. They're just all over the place and quick. I mean, we have one of those, like, I don't know, they're about 24 inches long chick feeders. They're like a big trough with little holes, so they have to poke their head in there so they can't spill. And when you put the chicks in there on their first day in the brooder, they, like, can barely climb over it. The goose, forget about it. He has to, like, hop along and go around it. You put a young duck in there. It was just born yesterday. And they're running across the top of it. They're pecking at each other. They're eating anything they can find, already looking like they're foraging and making a mess. Um... They're just awesome. And uh, it was one of those things like where I was like, if I had ponds, I would have had ducks last year, but I didn't have any ponds. And you can, you know, put out some stock tanks and stuff like that for the geese to do their thing in, and they're happy with that. And um, you can do it with ducks, but I always kind of feel like ducks should have more water than geese because they just rely on it more. Well, I've come up with a plan to have something almost like a real pond. And here's the plan. Well, I've got this place in the lower part of my land that... The old, and if you've seen the year in review or other videos, you've seen video of this area where the old homeowner tried to, uh, to make a pond with a bobcat and it wasn't going to happen. It's, it's on this slab rock, but a lot of that rock is kind of crumbly. And with the mini X that we brought in to do the swells, you could actually dig quite a bit there. And it's pretty possible to get down to a depth of about 18 inches to almost two feet, especially on the uphill side. Right? If you're doing a pond, this doesn't work. But if you're burying something into the ground, you can have the top side, and then the land slopes back to its normal slope. Maybe you terrace it off a little bit and then drop it off the end. But the front side of the, even though the tanks level to the to the ground to the center of the earth, uh, the slope of the earth itself kind of is higher in the front than the back, and you wall it in with dirt as best you can. Well. That means you could take something like a great big giant round, 750-gallon, 8-foot round by 2-foot deep stock tank, and you could stick it in there. And you could put a little pipe in there coming out of the bottom of it with a valve where you could drain the water out and use it for fertigation. Well, I haven't quite figured out exactly how we'll do that yet because, well, they're way down at the bottom of the property versus up at the top of the property, but... Running some electrical line down there wouldn't be out of the question either where we could actually put a pump down there. But th th these can basically be still stock tanks that can be drained whenever they need to be drained and then topped off from the well. So that's the plan. So the ducks will have their place and they won't get all nasty and stagnant and stinky because the area that we'll be in is almost under constant shade. 
Uh, and because of that, there'll be a nice place for the birds to get away and do their thing. And they'll be, they'll act like little garden ponds, basically. They'll be little garden ponds. And I will try to figure out some way to get some water circulation going on with them. I don't think I'll do a waterfall type of system where it goes up to one pond and back down the other. Just a recirculation of the water within each pond. There's a lot of ways that that can be done pretty low tech with some alternative energy. If it works out, it may actually be, though, that we can do something almost counterintuitive. And that is to actually create on the high side of the land swale berms that feed water into and out of the ponds. So it may actually be possible to put in many earthworks with them that when it rains, the overflow from the pond actually is taken out and dispersed. It's probably not possible to use the swells to put water in it. That would be great because it would make them a lot more self-maintaining. It may be possible, but it's probably not probable. There are other things that could be done, though, but I'm going to save them for later because I'm not sure exactly what I'm willing to do or what I want to do with them. I have some other places those tanks could go to that I'm evaluating to determine where it makes the most sense to put them. But the reality is I want to put them wherever I can bury them the deepest and make the most like natural ponds possible. If I can get them into the ground enough and mound it up enough, I can actually put some some logs and things around the edges. I could probably get them to a point where you might look at them and not even realize that there's metal tanks in there until you look on the inside. That would be ideal. That makes frog habitat and all kinds of other cool stuff. Before anybody says it, it makes my brain come out of my eyes and my ears. I am not worried about mosquitoes. I am not worried about mosquitoes. I am not worried about mosquitoes. Here's why. I will put fish in the ponds. They will eat the mosquitoes. Number two, there are plenty of places for mosquitoes to breed here other than my ponds. All right. So that kind of wraps up my homestead updates. So, you know, we, we've had enough almost for a whole show here. Uh, we've had a Bitcoin review, uh, Perma Ethos update, and we have had um, the opportunity to take a look at some of the things we're doing here on the homestead, and a bunch more is coming. Uh, my tree propagation is working well. I have plans now for my permanent greenhouse, including automated misting systems. I'm going to be putting in major plant propagation technology uh, to do softwood cuttings all through this summer. A lot of those cuttings will eventually be going to Ethos Farms. I'll be making some of my cuttings available to the audience. i got all kinds of stuff coming. It's awesome. But... I think we've covered enough of that. And it's about time now that we bring our special guest on. Uh, my special guest today is Matthew Miller. Oh, before I bring Matt on real quick, I just want you guys to know, tomorrow you're going to hear from dun, 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 Stephen Harris. Yes, with one of his coolest niches he's ever gone into. And I won't tell you what it is yet, but it's going to be awesome. He'll be on with you guys tomorrow, probably fairly late in the afternoon like today's show is. I'll be interviewing him tomorrow afternoon. Anyway, now I have Matthew Miller. He's a longtime listener to TSP and an MSP member. Uh, he decided to uh, build up his resiliency and self-sufficiency by learning how to maintain his own vehicles. He inherited his grandfather's 94 Ranger. That was the final push needed. 20-year-old truck with 80,000 miles on it. It was a great starter project. He's documented all his repairs and progress on the forums, the TSP forums, for others to learn and gain encouragement from. He's a cool guy, and I want to say with that, hey, Matthew, man, Welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. I've uh, been looking forward to this interview. Huge fan of the show. Man, I'm glad to have you on. Um, I always ask guests to give us a little bit about their background first, but I guess I'm going to ask you to do a little bit about your present before we get into uh, 
to talking about vehicles. Uh, I didn't even realize. It's like, I recognize your, your handle and your email, and I'm like, God, I know that guy. And it turns out you are the Matthew of Mai Tai Coffee, correct? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, I'm the guy, anyone orders coffee, uh, I'm the one that puts the order together and makes sure it gets out to them. That's awesome. You're one of our best MSB discounters as far as I'm concerned because you're unique and different. And uh, as I sit here, I sit here with a cup of uh, Full City Roast right now. Um, so for folks that maybe haven't heard before, you guys do a discount for the MSB. I believe it's 10% off all orders. And uh, the company, again, is uh, MyTaiCoffee.com. Uh, so, guys, if you haven't tried that benefit, go ahead and do it. And, Matthew, you were telling me you're, that we're like your best uh, discount channel or specialty channel. Yeah, uh, the company's been around for about five years, and I just had the thought, you know, I sent you some coffee probably about a year ago just as a thank you for the show, and then I talked to my boss and said, you know, we should offer, we should approach Jack about doing a discount because he's got a very loyal audience. You know, I'm a member of the MSP myself. I know what is back there, and uh, he said, go for it. So I talked to you. We launched it, and uh, the first week we launched uh, the code with you guys, I think I was elbow deep in coffee every single day. <laughs> it, it, it was ridiculous. I, I was actually worried that it was going to be uh, more work than we could handle, but uh, we've we've handled it great. You guys, the the pod, the the forum community, the TSB community has just been awesome and very supportive. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate that. And well, let's get into the topic today because we're actually here to not talk about coffee, but uh, DIY vehicle maintenance, which I don't know, pretty much whenever I'm working on a car, I have a cup of joe in my hand. But uh, before we even get into that, can you tell people a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, maybe how you found TSP or, or, you know, how you decided that you wanted to even bother with doing your own vehicle maintenance? Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know what clicked in my head, but a couple of years ago I decided I need a gun. Uh, and and um, I've got a couple of kids at home at this point, and I was just thinking, you know, I need to be able to protect my family. So purchased a handgun, got onto some gun forums. Then I saw this sub-forum, you know, SHTF, and I'm thinking, what is this? So I started poking around in there, and then I learned about, uh, you know, shit hit the fan and stuff like that, and that got my mind thinking. And uh, somewhere along those lines, uh, my eyes were kind of open. I switched from grasshopper to ant. I went in the freak-out mode because I learned about Rawless and Red Patriots, and I thought I had to have everything now. And then someone dropped your name, and so I went over, checked out your forum and uh, your your blog. I think it was episode 902 I looked. It was the episode you did on sailing as a skill set, and uh, that was the first time I saw your your uh, your blog, listened to the shows, uh, and got hooked. And, and here I am just trying to do what I can uh, to better the position of myself and my family. And um, vehicle maintenance was kind of one of those things that, I thought, well, I should learn to do this because it's really simple. I can save a lot of money, and uh, and and it just kind of went from there. I just decided to do it, and, and here we are, you know, having this interview. Well, cool, man. So, like when I was a kid, my dad, my uncles, everybody would, you know, do things like change their own oil and all. And I, we, I, we had a couple. Uh, eventually, we put our own ramp in on on uh, my grandfather's property, but initially we didn't have one, so you either had to jack it up. But a lot of people in my area had, you know, these hand-built ramps out of these old big oak planks. You'd pull the car up under and you'd get under there and change the oil and grease it. And I remember being a kid, and they would always take me with them and show them what they do. Um, and, and I think it used to be that way. But 
now it's really not like people don't even know how to do basic things like an oil change. Do, do, do people around you, your family, think like you know you're crazy because you were going to do your own work on your car? Uh, yeah, my wife thought I was going to send us over a cliff in a fiery ball of death um, when I told her I was going to change change our own brakes. Uh, my uh, my dad, uh, you know, he's I, I love him and he's going to listen to this, so I love you, Dad. But he's not an outdoorsy guy, and he'll admit it. So we never did a lot of work. And I approached him and I said, "Hey, I'm going to do my own brakes." And he said, "Oh, you don't want to do your own brakes because he's just thinking of the nightmare that drum ba- drum brakes were." Yeah. And so. Uh, when I decided, I kind of started doing this really uh, without a lot of moral support at home. But I was just, I just said, I'm going to do this. I want to save the money. I want to learn to do it uh, because I've got a thread on the forum where I actually uh, catalog everything I do with with what I've been told are really good pictures. Uh, I, I started that thread saying, you know, what if something happens and I can't get to a shop? What if the shop is going to charge me an outrageous price that I can't afford? Or what if there are no shops, um, you know, if, if things get real bad? So uh, I just wanted to learn how to do it myself, and I just started charging ahead. Awesome. And, you know, so did you have any experience at all working on vehicles, or did you have to kind of start from scratch? I, you know, I could change my tire if I got a flat. Um, and actually, I got a safety note on that we can probably hit later, but... Um, did that I think one time on a car when I was young my dad and I changed the water pump um, and that's really it uh, that I, I oh and we, we installed a CD uh, player in my first car which was an 87 Oldsmobile um, but so so that's really all I did and I mean I could you know check my oil level uh, check my windshield fluid and that was it I'd, I'd never done anything else and um, so yeah I pretty much started from scratch because that was all Oh, at least you know, 15 years ago when I the, when I even remotely did anything, um, so just just starting from scratch to learn on my own. You know, I've noticed. You know, I was a kid that grew up with all of this stuff, and then I went into the military because I was a dummy and you know could have had any job I wanted. So I decided, well, let me go work on giant trucks and bust my knuckles for a few years. <laughs> so I kind of have a professional mechanics background, but I've noticed that. Even with that, I know what to do, but I don't have the instincts and dexterity uh, when I do do something on my own anymore. So w- would you say you've noticed, too, that like the more you do, the more adept you get like any other skill? Yeah, and uh, what what I've noticed is um, when I first started, I, I started with easy stuff. Um, and, you know, brakes, they sound complicated, but really with these disc brakes now, they're easy. And that's a huge confidence builder. And I think from there you move on to uh, doing more advanced repairs, and and uh, and yeah, like you said, you are a professional mechanic, and I'm over here just being a shade tree guy. But uh, e- either person can accomplish what they need to accomplish. You really just need to have some common sense and and just step back and look at what needs to be done. It's it's really pretty straightforward. What I found from starting to do this. Have you found that a lot of people do have that fear issue? Like you were saying, your wife was afraid you were going to send your car over a cliff because you did your own brakes. And I mean, really, when you get down to it, things like brakes are a basic mechanical job uh, and pretty hard to do wrong and actually get them back on the car. Um, There's some things with adjusting and bleeding. Adjusting disc brakes is a way that they charge you extra money for doing nothing when you get your brakes done by a mechanic because you don't adjust, you know, (laughs) this <laughs> breaks but th- there's just that fear like you're going to break something if you touch it or work on it 
Yeah, and that was actually a fear I had and why I'd never done anything before. Before, we always sent our cars to the shops, and yeah, we got overcharged. And, and I remember uh, we had, um, I had some brakes, I had my brake pads replaced. This is, this is really what sold me on why I have to do this. I had my brake pads replaced year, a couple of years ago, and they were just, you know, basic ceramic pads, disc brakes. The shop charged me almost, I think, $150, and that was their sale price, right? And that's just pads. Oh, just for the pads. Yeah, that's just pads. Oh, nice. They're yeah, like fourteen dollars, fifteen dollars a yeah, set. Exactly. Yeah, the tw- pads are twenty dollars, and I didn't know any better uh, because I'd never thought about it or never looked at it. I thought, well, that's what it costs, and I need brakes. And, and then even um, uh, I had some other issues with my rotors. I felt some wobble, so I was telling the shop about it. They said, "Oh, we'll machine them for you. We charge, I think, it was like a hundred bucks to machine them." Okay. Well, now I know if I want to, I can take the rotors off my car. I can run them down to, you know, the local auto store like O'Reilly's or AutoZone. They'll turn the rotors for 15 bucks a piece for me and, and do what the shop charged me 100 bucks for. Well, not, not only that, I mean, I see a lot of times that, you know, the brake places do the, we'll do all four brakes for, you know, 119.99 or whatever. And then you go in there and they always say, well, this rotor needs to be turned. This one needs to be replaced. This caliper should have this. And, and, and if you know what you're doing, you look at that and go, no, 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 and no. A lot of times when they're turning rotors, the rotors don't even need to be turned. I can't tell you how, especially older cars, you, you're going to keep for another eight months. Well, it might squeak. I don't care. Put the brakes on it. I had my son's car is worth maybe $1,100. Right, maybe eleven hundred bucks. Yeah, and they wanted to do an eight hundred dollar brake job on it for no reason other than this is the right way to do it. <laughs> and like, so my my question to them was, at any time, well, the, these old brakes were on there. Did metal touch metal? No. Okay. Um, is there any safety reason that you're doing? It? Is there anything unsafe about just putting the pads on and and going on with life? Well, no. Okay, then we're done. And if you haven't ever done it yourself, because sometimes you just don't have time to do it. And you do have to rely on a shop, a shop, but if you've never done it yourself, you don't even know to ask those questions or how to deal with that because the average person is sitting there and they're like, man, if you don't have this, and they're thinking, if I don't do this, my car is going to explode or I'm going to die or something. And it, it's just really nonsense, and it's a marketing hook. Do it for 120 bucks, and they just know they're bringing you in to turn it into a five to $800 job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and here's the thing. I'll just throw this out right now. This is what I realized after I started uh, looking into doing my own things. All vehicles are are adult Legos. That's all. That's all. That's all they are. They're just a bunch of parts that go together, uh, and, and that's really what it comes down to. And when you look at it like that, then then I think that fear starts to go away. You start pulling away from those shops, and you start doing it yourself. I mean, yeah, you got vacuum lines and electrical and da da da, but usually that's not. It, it's kind of like your disaster matrix thing, you know. That yeah, having a, having a having a catastrophic failure in your car that you're not going to be able to fix is really unlikely to happen. More likely, you're going to need to deal with the everyday mundane stuff like changing your oil, changing your brakes, changing your shocks. You know, maybe you have something uh, with the engine that goes bad. Like I had to replace a water pump, and, and that stuff's relatively simple and straightforward and easy. And that's what you're going to come across most of the time. Yeah, and I think like. The reality is the stuff that you're looking to do on a vehicle is almost never hard from a knowledge standpoint or from a technical standpoint. It's always, can I fit my damn hands in there? Yeah. Right? That's, yeah. it, it's like they've made vehicles so 
not really complicated, but so much crap stacked into them that a lot of times that's the big issue. That's where the time gets burned is trying to get in and, and, and different tools that you can actually get a, a ratchet onto a nut or something like that. Um, but in the end, they're not difficult. It's just experience and, and, and do you want to take the time to do it? Like I was saying, there's times when you're like, I could do this, I don't have the time, but man, having the knowledge so you know how not to be ripped off, I think alone is priceless. Yeah, absolutely. And the size thing is so true, right? The two vehicles I'm working on right now, uh, and I think it's on the bio that's going to be on the blog, is I got my grandfather's truck when he passed away. It's a 94 Ranger, Ford Ranger. Awesome little truck. You know, uh, pretty much mint, I think. Uh, in one of my repairs, it's kind of funny. The original spare tire with the dealer tire pressure sticker is still underneath it. Uh, I mean, it's it's just the truck's in great shape. And it's so easy to work on because stuff's spread out. The engine's actually straightforward, you know, that versus the car. It's a, an 05 Malibu that I have, and it is so hard to get to some stuff in there because they just jam it all in there. And it seems the newer these cars get, the tighter they're trying to pack everything to save space and weight. And, yeah, it does make things difficult sometimes, and that's really the biggest problem is just getting to the part. Yeah, I mean, if you ever hear me saying, well, today I was working on my Jetta, that means the shit has, in fact, hit the fan. I'm just not doing it. It's just too... It, my fingers and, and hands do not go into the compartments that are... I'll change, you know, an air filter or a PVC valve or something, but that's about it. I'm not I'm not climbing up under that thing. There's about two and a half inches of clearance there. Um, but my truck, I don't mind working on my truck at all. It's easy. Yeah, yeah, and that's the other thing you just said with clearance. Yeah, it's a lot easier to get under my truck than to get under my car. Just to get under my car, I got to jack it up just to get under there and look at things, uh, and that's that's annoying. And that's where, like you said, um, you know, when you were growing up, everyone had those ramps. Uh, ramps are actually something on my to-do list because it's a lot easier to drive up ramps to get under your car than it is to jack it up and throw a jack stand under there just to look for two minutes. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um what are some of the tools you find yourself using the most during your repairs? Because a lot, I get a lot of questions. You know, I'm, I'm building up a good hand tool set or a power tool set. What do you think that like the stuff you're always going to? Well, I'll I'll start with the disclaimer. If if someone's kind of like me and they're starting from zero, do not even look at air compressors. Do not even look at power tools. Uh, just start with good basic solid hand tools. I actually had a, a thread out on the forums um, asking about air compressors and power tools, and it's funny, from those threads, I talked myself out of getting those and just going to basic hand tools, um, because any, as one guy said, I can't remember who said it on the, on the, on the forum I was talking to, um, hand tools, or, or excuse me, power tools and air compressor tools are there to speed up your work. They're not there to do the work. You should be able to do any job, really, I think, with a good, well-rounded set of hand tools. Um, and uh, pretty much, any if you were to go to, like, Harbor Freight and buy one of those 132-piece mechanics tool sets, that would have just about everything you need to start with basic stuff. Um, like, you know, you need sockets, socket wrenches. You're going to need, uh, like, open and closed-end wrenches are really nice to have. Uh, screwdrivers, because sometimes you need a screwdriver to pop a tab off or a clamp, or it's just easier to get into a uh, a, a position like that. One thing I'd really recommend uh, everyone get is a good breaker bar. And basically, if, if people don't know, it's basically like a, you can get them like 12-foot, 18-inch, 2-foot length bar, and all that's for is leverage. 
Um, that's just to help you get real stubborn bolts uh, loose, and then you can actually go in with your socket wrench or, or wrench and get those open. Uh, one thing I just got, which I'm, I'm really enjoying, is I got a torque wrench, and uh, that basically lets you... Uh, bolts are supposed to be torqued to a certain degree of tightness, and a torque wrench will help you find that degree of tightness. Like, I just put, I just had to do a ton of stuff uh, messing with my brakes uh, and the actual, the actual mount that the, that the wheel goes on. I really wanted to make sure that was torqued to uh, spec because I don't want that bolt to break or fly off while I'm driving and then lose my wheel. Um, so that's, that's something I think is really cool. Not necessary. Like I said, I just got it, uh, but it is nice to have. Uh, like we said, jack and jack stands are, are good. Never get under a car without a jack, uh, without a jack stand under there. Don't get under it if it's just a jack, because uh, jacks fail, and that'll kill you. Um, you need lights, lamps, flashlights. Sometimes you're getting in there, you're looking at uh, dark stuff you can't really see. Go uh, get some catch pans for fluids. If you're going to do your oil or you're going to mess with uh, trans, you know, transmission fluid, radiator fluids, brake fluid, anything, have something to catch that stuff in. And then just my little fun one is I like to listen to music when I work. <laughs> so, you know, have a little stereo or something for fun. But that set right there, that'll pretty much cover the bases. That's what I found. I think I started doing this back in, um, oh, I think July or August of last year is when I just started taking care of my cars. And that's really all I have. And I had most of that stuff, like I said, from just one of those cheap, you know, 130-piece tool kits. And then you add a couple pieces in here and there. You know, I, I'm not usually a fan of kind of off-the-shelf kit stuff, but th the reality is when it comes to hand tools, those kits are pretty good. Are they, like, if you go to Harbor Freight and get something made by Pittsburgh or something like that, is it the quality of Snap-on? No. No. But do you need that? No. You really don't, and yeah, they come with a lifetime warranty and all, and that's fine. And, and I, I bring up Snap-on because if you said to me, what is probably the best uh, quality lifetime investment in hand tools, I'd probably tell you Snap-on. Um, years ago, I would have said Craftsman was up there. Today, no. Um, but those types of tool sets, if you have a failure of a tool, you can replace it for a few dollars. Yeah. And if you have something you use all the time, like... I have a coffee can, and in that coffee can are seven sixteenths, half inch, nine sixteenths, and five eight sockets, like a couple handfuls of each. Just because if one fails, I know I'm going to be using those all the time. Yeah, and and um, the tools. Uh, what I've started doing myself, like I said, I had one of those kits. I think I got it as a wedding gift, and so it just been around. Um, as I started doing this work, now that I have to buy a couple of tools, I do buy those uh, better brand names. Um, like craft, I'm actually doing Craftsman just because that's easy. Uh, they're a good tool. Don't, don't take what I said wrong. I'm not saying they're not a good tool. They're a good tool. Yeah. They're just, they're not what they were in 1980. No, no. But, but for me, for the price, and I can still take it to the Sears that's, you know, 20 minutes away if yep. I break something, that's great. You know what I saw the other day that actually piqued my interest? I haven't tried them out or bought them, but Home Depot's brand, Husky. You know, I knew their their power tools came with, they have a, a lifetime repair and replacement. I mean, batteries and everything on the power tools, on the cordless stuff, which is cool. But I saw their hand tools the other day. It said lifetime on those as well. So I don't know about the quality. I can't vouch for that. But that's another brand out there like the Snap-ons snap, snap -ons or Craftsman's 
that are going to offer that lifetime uh, guarantee on it. And like I snapped a wrench. I had one of those cheap Pittsburgh sets from Harbor Freight. They did a yep. good job, but I snapped a wrench. And well, that's that's too bad. But you know, I my dad was cool, and for Christmas I got a set of Craftsman uh, wrenches. Ah. And so that was really nice. And uh, so what what I what I think is a good approach for people: don't go out and buy a thousand dollars worth of snap-on tools or Craftsman tools. Buy that cheap set to start with. And as you start needing more tools or you break a tool, then slowly add in those better quality tools because then it's going to be a lot easier on your wallet. And like you said, you don't need them all the time right away. I add them as convenience allows. Uh, you don't have to get the best thing right away, especially if you're just doing weekend work in your garage. Now, when we look at vehicle maintenance, I put it in two categories. There's the this is what needs to be done category, and that's you look at your brakes and they're they're getting low or you're starting to get some sound to them from the warning devices or whatever and you know I need to put brakes on the car because it's a design to fail part it's a design to wear out part and you you're at a point where it's a maintenance issue you look at your belts and they're starting to look a little old and you know you need to put new belts on then there's the vehicle's making a noise or it's not accelerating. It's almost like an intangible, like you know it's not accelerating right because you've driven the vehicle your whole life and all of a sudden now it's just not, it's lagging in search and you get into the world of troubleshooting. <laughs> this is far more complex than changing parts and changing oil. Yep. How did you approach learning, you know, the troubleshooting methodologies? Um, I pretty much, I've just gone to online resources, uh, Usually, for just about every car out there, there is going to be a forum for it. You know, you've got the Survival Podcast forum. There are, I've got a forum I go to for my truck. I've got a forum I go to for my car. Uh, with the truck forum is awesome. There's a lot of guys on there that are, that are gearheads and doing work. The car forum sucks. If I look at the problem, everyone's like, take it to the dealership. So, uh, you know, uh, I guess that might be vehicle dependent, but... What you can do a lot of times is i found I can go onto these forums. I can describe my problem to people. They will give me things to look at. Um, also, as I'm gaining knowledge, I'm, I'm able to diagnose things a little better myself. And one thing I've seen people do, too, is uh, they'll actually make a YouTube video, just a real quick one, with whatever noise is being made, or they'll show you what they're seeing, and they'll actually upload that to YouTube. You can show that to people on the Internet, and now instead of having to take it to your shop and pay the mechanic, you know, 50 bucks or whatever to go over the car and tell you what's wrong, you could potentially fix the pro you know, diagnose the problem without ever even leaving your house. Um, so that's, that's one way I've troubleshot things. Um, I had to replace a fuel filler neck on my truck because it was leaking gas. It cracked. It's just, it's 20 years old. It happens. And, and through online research, based on the symptoms, the location of the leak, you know, I was able to figure out what the problem was without ever taking it to a shop. So that that's one way I, I go to diagnose. Um, and then the the other thing too is noises are hard, and, and that's um that's where you really need someone who knows. I think what they're doing. Like my neighbor, he he works on his truck, so he helped me out with some stuff. Um, but it might do good to um for people to have a mechanic that they trust. Uh, my boss takes his van to a small shop, and whenever I take the van in there, if I've got something going on with my cars, I'll talk to the guy who owns the shop, and he'll actually pull up. He's got the professional all-data you know, shop maintenance thing. He'll pull it up, give me schematics, tell me based on symptoms it might be this, this, or this. So troubleshooting definitely sucks, 
but if you have people more knowledgeable than you that you can go to, that's going to make your life a lot easier. I would also say I think it's one of like the best skills to learn because it's translatable into so many other things. Um, When I, when I look back to my time in the military, it's the most valuable thing I think that I took out of the military other than maybe a leadership mentality because yeah, this is a process by which we determine why there's a uh, hydro lock in a diesel rig uh, and, and how it happened and how we undo it. But that methodology of I'm going to figure out based on, okay, here's the system affected. Therefore, this is the starting point of that system. And therefore, I'm going to check every point of failure methodically along that system process until I find where the problem is. Once you can do that, you can go look at a business and go, well, customer service sucks. And instead of just yelling at somebody, you can say, well, where does customer service begin? Uh What are all the steps in the customer service process? Where are the breakdowns, and how do we take corrective action? And you give me a problem, and it will always be the same methodology. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think people really, like a mechanic's just a mechanic. A good mechanic could be pulled out of his job and sent to Washington and do a hell of a lot better job solving problems than the clowns up there doing it right now. Yeah, absolutely. That skill to analyze things is very, very good. And that's I, I'm still not great at it. I reach out a lot to people for help. But um, at the same time, I can look at problems and I can say, well, this is, this is probably this. Like, my truck's uh, throwing a chuck engine light right now, but it's intermittent. I, yep. I took it to uh, AutoZone because they had a reader that'll read a truck that old, and apparently my engine has a lean issue. Well, I, based on that knowledge now, I need to go through my air system to see if I've got any loose hoses or it might be a bad O2 sensor. I don't know what it is. I haven't actually had a chance to get and look into it, but it, you start with that basic knowledge, and, and like you said, the system, and, and then you start going through that system and seeing what it can be in process of elimination. So it can be frustrating, but, man, when you finally figure it out, it's real rewarding. Yeah, definitely. I, it, it really is. Um, now, sooner or later, because this is like, here's my other thing for me in the Army as a mechanic. People come to me and go, you're a mechanic, fix it. <laughs> okay, hold on a second. If, if there's actually a bad part, I need a new part. I can't lay hands on it, chant the mechanic's code, and bring the vehicle back to life. So sooner or later, you have to replace certain parts and components of a vehicle. Uh, Me, generally, there's an O'Reilly down the road. If I need a part, I'm going to do a job myself. If it's under 50 bucks, I don't even worry about it. But if it's an expensive part, I call around because it could be 20, 30 bucks. What what have you found as far as your source uh, to get parts? Interestingly enough, my new favorite source for parts, it, it might be surprising or not surprising, but Amazon. Yep. I was blown away by how the price of the parts they have. Um, before Amazon, and still sometimes I get it, there's a website called um, Rock Auto. It's R-O-C-K-A-U-T-O, just rockauto.com. That's a really good place to um, – they have a tremendous parts list broken down by your specific vehicle, and that's a great place just to look through parts and kind of see what's what, know what a part looks like. Like that truck, I need an O2 sensor. Well, I really don't know what it looks like. Rock Auto has pictures of all their parts, so I could go look at that one. Um, so uh, those are two really good places. Um, Amazon just blew me out on the shocks I just did. I got shocks and struts all around for my car for 200 bucks, 
um, which was the best price I could find anywhere. Uh, I was really amazed. Um, but also, I do go to O'Reilly's. Uh, that's kind of my preferred shop because it's closest to me. Uh, they've got uh, good part selection. And, and the advantage of going to a brick-and-mortar location is you can talk to people. And sometimes that's worth paying a little more uh, to get the knowledge from the people there to help you find what you need. Um, there's an auto zone down the road. Uh, I, I try to, um, I don't go there as much just cause I tend to like O'Reilly's more. And, and plus they fired that guy who saved his manager with a gun last year or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't try to give them my business. Um, but sometimes you have to, uh, so that's really the, the main places I go. If you've got an older car and you need parts, one thing to look at too, I've not done it, but I know a lot of people have is there's pick-and-pull junkyards. So if you really need some funky part or some bolts that no one can find, uh, you can look and see if there's any junkyards around you that, that stock cars, and they basically let you go in, pull what you need, and then you pay for it on your way out after they see what you took. Um, so Boy, that takes me back. I haven't relied on that forever. But when I was a kid and I was broke and I needed a part, let me tell you, there were a lot of junkyards around, and you could get on the phone and go, do you have any... You know, uh, you know, seventy-two to seventy-eight Pontiac Grand Prix around there because you know most of the parts are compatible. And the guy's like, "Yeah, we got twelve of them laying here, all busted up." Um, man, you could go out there and pull apart. You could save a lot of money. And I think you get spoiled as you get a little more successful in life and you forget about those things. But man, I'll tell you, I remember my first car. Um, the transmission basically crapped the bed two weeks after I got it. And when you're a sixteen-year-old kid. And you've worked all summer to buy your first car. That sucks. Oh, yeah, that's brutal. And it had a TH400, like the, this is old technology, but the TH350 was in every Chevy GM car. But I had a, four, uh, a 455 uh, Pontiac motor, so I needed a TH400. That was hard to find, but I eventually found a transmission for 25 bucks if I went and pulled it myself. I think a rebuild kit for it was like $15. Huh. And, and, you know, my buddies and I went and we put a new transmission in this car. And, you know, if you, even back then, if you had bought a rebuilt transmission, you're talking five, six hundred dollars on a car I paid three hundred bucks for. Yeah. That, yeah. That's awesome. And, and like I'm looking at a pick and pull right now because my truck has disc brakes or excuse me, drum brakes on the back. But there's actually a conversion out there to where you can basically pull the brakes, pull the rear brakes off like a 04 Mustang. And I could put disc brakes all around in my truck if I want to, but I'm going to have to go to a pick and pull for that. So I know they're out there. I know they got the cars. I just haven't actually gone down there and done it yet. I've had too many other things happening. Sure, that makes sense. Um, of all the work you've done so far, what would you say has been the easiest thing you, you learned to do and maybe the most difficult? Easiest, probably like you called it, air filters. Yeah. I mean, that, that's cake. It's so easy to do. It's almost ridiculous. Um, other real easy ones to do that are, are I think are good confidence builders I don't know necessarily how, um, or I should say, I don't know how necessary they are, but you have a bunch of sensors in your air system, like the MAF sensor, and I couldn't tell you what they mean, I don't remember, but there's a bunch of sensors basically that you can pull off your air system and clean, and I, I did some write-ups on those on the thread I have. Those are real easy to do, and at least for me, those were some of the first things I did, and they were kind of a big confidence builder because you're actually, you're not just taking a box off and throwing a new filter in. You're actually undoing some clamps, removing your air system, you know, looking at really delicate electronics and cleaning them and then putting it back together and your car starts. It's really nice. 
And at least for me, that was a confidence builder saying, well, this, this is a lot easier than I thought it would be. And uh, like I did, um, uh, and on the hard side, uh, this one I actually haven't done the write-up yet, but last week I got my just I got my butt handed to me by my car. I did I did the shocks and struts, but I also had an axle leak and my crankshaft seal was leaking. They were both on the right side, so I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I'm, I'm I can just go in on the same side, just take everything apart, replace it, no problem. And um, I. They got these stupid splash cards everywhere, you know, underneath the wheels you had to pull out. Um, it was tough getting those out. Um, the uh, To get to my crankshaft pulley, I actually had to t- remove bolts from the frame of the car and lower the subframe, basically the engine mount. I had to drop the engine underneath the car so that I could actually get to that pulley. Yeah. And I wasn't able to do it. Uh, I couldn't, and then on the axle side, I couldn't get my... Um, wheel bearing off the axle. I couldn't remove the half shaft from my transmission. I just didn't have the leverage. It it was stuck. And it was really frustrating. And eventually I got to the point where uh, I just stopped because I was mad. I was angry. I was tired because I'd already done, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And I just quit because I was either going to break something and cost myself a lot more money or I was going to hurt myself. And I ended up having the shop do those two things because they had to get done and I couldn't do them. So that was pretty frustrating and it was pretty hard, but it was also a good lesson because up till that point, I'd pretty much been able to successfully do every repair I needed to. And that, I think that was good for me and good for people to know you're not going to be able to do everything, uh, you know, if you're missing a special tool or sometimes it just happens and you run out of time. So it, that, that was the hardest thing that I'd done. Uh, you know, it was a little shot to the ego too because now I've ruined my 1,000 batting average. Yeah. But you know what? It's good to know that there's some things you can't do, and it's good to know when to call it. Yeah. When to say, you know what? Uh, this is not. This is not going to work for us. We're not going to do this. Uh, we're going to get somebody that really knows what they're doing. And a lot of times, it is a a specialized tool issue uh, or simply a, a resources issue. Uh, could you swap your own motor? Sure. Yeah. Do you have a cherry picker, you know, and you ain't going to do it by hand. Right, so there's, you know, can you do your own head job? Maybe, but do you really want to do? It depends on what kind of motor you're looking at, uh, how many things have to come off it, and then there's times where you just don't have time. Like I'll tell you, one of the shittiest jobs to do is a water pump. It's just a pain in the ass because you have to take so much off the vehicle and all, and it's not hard. It's just time consuming. At some points you do the work, and at other points you say, "I don't have time." And knowing how many hours you're going to be committed, and you know, do you need the vehicle, right? If I need to do a water pump on one of my trucks, and I have multiple vehicles, and I can pull it in the garage and work on it over two weekends and take my time, and I don't really care, drink some beer, listen to the radio, fine. If I need it to roll tomorrow morning, I may really want to think about that. Yeah, and that's, like, I did the water pump on my truck, and yeah, that was a pain. I'll tell you what was even more of a pain. Dude, people, pay attention to where your parts are when you're putting it back together. Oh, yeah, take pictures, man. That's well, They're free on an iPhone. Yeah, well, and that's and that's actually the reason I started the thread, was I, I was taking pictures to remind myself where things went, and then I thought, oh, hey, you know what, I can share this and uh, put it up for, to hopefully encourage other people. But uh, the other thing, too, like, I can't tell you how many times... I set a part out of order when I disassemble something. I put things together, and I'm halfway done putting it back together, and I realize, crap, I forgot the sec- you know, the first bolt that should have gone back on. So now you got to take it all apart again, 
yeah. <laughs> and then put it back together the right way. And that, that man, that is frustrating. And, and when that happens, uh, people really need to just slow down and take a break. And my water pump job was like that. I, I replaced the water pump in my truck because I had a leak. Uh, that's what the shop told me. And, and I looked, and I could visibly see the fluid leaking. So I said, okay, they wanted to charge me $300 to do my water pump. I priced out a water pump. It was 30 bucks. Yeah. I said, and I realized most of that charge is labor. Um, but still, uh, that, that's a huge cost savings there. And, yeah, I got the water pump out, and then I'm trying to take my thermostat out because I was having some heating issues. And it's like there was one bolt I had to do, and for whatever reason, there was a the bracket that came off the engine mount that the alternator went on, had an extra piece of material on it. It looked like it was manufactured that way. I could not get a socket around the last, last bolt that I needed to come out. It was so frustrating. It took me literally 45 minutes to get this one stupid bolt out so I could replace my thermostat. And stuff like that's going to happen. And, yeah, a job that you think should take, I can get this done in an hour. Yeah, three hours later, you're still there. You yeah. know, that's something people need to consider is the time, which is why I had those seals replaced at the shop. We needed the car. I didn't want to replace the whole transmission because the fluid got low because I didn't replace the leaking seal. And sometimes you got to bite the bullet and send it in. Yeah, definitely. And, again, a lot of times that does come down to a, a, a time crunch situation. Um, you've only been doing this a short time, but it sounds like you've saved quite a bit of money on, on this. If you had to put a ballpark dollar figure on it, do you have any idea? Yeah, I, I was adding up some numbers actually before this interview because um, uh, I wanted to figure that out. If you look at just cost savings over shop parts and uh, what the shop wanted to charge me, I'm, I'm actually ahead about 2400 bucks, and, and that's from doing it myself, so that's you know, $2,400 savings uh, since July. That's pretty nice. If you back out um, the, some of the tools I bought and even add in that big uh, seal job I just had done, I'm still ahead about $1,900 because I had to pay almost $420 to get those seals replaced, and that was mostly labor. And I also had to get an alignment, so that was put in there too. Um, but so I've, I've saved quite a bit of money, which is really nice. The, the biggest one lump saving that I think finally uh, sealed my wife's uh, confidence in me doing this was uh, we smelled gas out of our car and I thought well why am I smelling gas I thought maybe um, I had a bad valve on the filler neck tube or something and so no fuel was leaking but then I got underneath the tank and looked and I had gas just dripping down the outside of my gas tank on the car and I thought oh no and um, it was having trouble starting, so this is a troubleshooting thing like we talked about. I just did some research online and um, found, that, found a guy who actually had my exact same symptoms. The car wouldn't start right away. You actually had to prime the pump a little bit. It was leaking gas, and turns out there's a line on the fuel pump that uh, cracked and went bad. So to take that to a shop, I was probably looking at $1,000 to get that fixed. Well, I went and bought the pump. I probably could have gotten a better price on the pump, but I bought it for $300 at O'Reilly's because I needed it now and um, didn't want my wife driving the car anywhere because one flicked cigarette butt and, you know, the whole gas tank could go up. And uh, so we we did that. I saved 700 bucks on that job alone. A buddy, wow. a buddy came over and we did that. And, you know, that finally, uh, that was just like the biggest, coolest thing because, it, you know, saving 700 bucks, that's a big chunk of change at one time. And that's a really nice feeling knowing that you did that, you kept the family safe, and you saved money at the same time. 
Yeah, definitely. And I don't know why it made me think of it now, and I didn't think of it earlier, but one thing I wanted to bring up back when we were talking about taking pictures of everything and stuff like that, um, in, in, in the days before iPhones and infinite photography, and you didn't happen to have a, a Chilton's manual on the vehicle, do you know what the solution was when you didn't know how everything went back together? Uh, label it? No, when you didn't know, you screwed it up already. Now you're sitting there looking at it, you can't figure out how to do it. Uh. You find somebody that has the same vehicle, and, you, and I'm serious. And you go look at it. You're like, "Hey, does anybody have a you know call? Start calling around and find somebody with a Grand Prix, for instance, and go look. Oh, that's where it goes. And I mean, I, I actually, as a kid, I had to do that a few times. And man, that's if you're taking something apart, complex pictures, pictures, pictures. Oh yeah, like you said, infinite pictures. It's free. Uh, I just bought um, a motorcycle actually because. I want to get back on a motorcycle. I can't justify going out and just buying a new bike. But because of the confidence I've gained from this and doing these repairs, I went out and I found a bike that doesn't run, but it's mechanically complete with a clean title for 200 bucks. And well, that's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm going to restore that. That's my next project that I've got going on. And I'm going to be taking a boatload of pictures of that because I've actually got to strip the engine down to every single bolt. Now, I've never done that before. That'll be the most complex repair I do. But I've got the confidence to do it. I have the ability to do it. I know. So I just actually have to get in there and do it. And, and yeah, pit, pictures, pictures, pictures. It's, it's going to be a ton of them. Yeah, definitely. It, 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 I think that's like the cheapest insurance you can apply um, to making sure that you can get things back together. Yeah. Um, now you've been doing all this stuff on the forum and showing people all you're doing. Has it, been a, has it been a two-way street, though? Have you gotten a lot of assistance back from forum members? Yeah, I have, and I actually wanted to add one more picture thing real quick that I just thought of. And, uh, okay. One thing I've heard people do, I don't have the patience to do it, but one thing people have said they do is they'll actually take a picture of whatever it is they're taking apart, like say it's a water pump or an engine head, and they'll get a picture of where all the bolts and everything are. They'll actually print that out, and then as they take the bolts out, they'll stick the bolts through the piece of paper. Ah. And and uh, Or put the piece of paper on cardboard so it's a little sturdier. And they'll actually shove all the bolts in, into where they go on that picture. And I thought that was a really cool method. I personally don't have the patience for it, but if you're doing a real complex job and you're taking your time, you know that, that's probably another great idea for people to do so they don't get bolts mixed up and, and lose them. And, uh, and then the forum question that you asked, yeah, the forum's been awesome. Uh, that you know this this whole section of the interview might just turn into a plug to if you're not on the forum, get there now, people. Uh, because it's it's great. Um, I've had such uh, encouragement from people that are on the forum saying, good job, you know, we're enjoying the pictures. And other times, too, uh, I'll mention a repair that's coming up i got to do, and people will chime in and say, hey, while you're in there, make sure you check this. Or if you're going to do this, an easier way is to do this. And they're just giving me ideas and helping me out. And uh, I get that on the other forums, too, that, I, that are the vehicle-specific ones. But the TSP forum has just been great. Uh, there's a bunch of guys on there, uh, like um, NC Jeepers on there, Jersey Vince, Chris Fox, F66. There's a ton of other guys that have chimed in specifically on this thread. But they've really helped me uh, and, give, and helped like, kind of boost my confidence. And that's pretty much the community feel. That's not my thread. That's the forums. I mean, it's just a, a great place to be about anything. And so that's uh, one of the other reasons I put this thread in there. I figure let's show people that it can be done and try to get people doing their own work to make them more self-sufficient. But at the same time, 
I know I'm going to get help from people that I need, and I know from seeing other posts of these guys that they're they're gearheads. Like dude, NC Jeeper, he put a picture up on my thread of his little man cave he's got. He's got his own vehicle lift in there, uh, and he put a picture up. You can see his Jeep like six feet off the ground, his rock crawler. I just you know thanks for bragging, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so all this stuff is on the forum, and you don't have a blog or anything. You have like a, a really long thread of all of this journey, uh, right? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't have enough time to make my own blog, uh, so I figured I'd just piggyback onto the forums, and and uh, that's good enough for me. I don't need my own blog. I just wanted to put a thread out there, and it got some good good reception. And I just wanted, so I'm just going to keep it going. Anytime I do something on the cars, I'm just going to post it up there. You know, I doubt there's going to be anyone who's got a 94 Ranger with the exact problem as me, and they're going to say, oh, you know, Matthew had a thread, and I can go find out how to fix it. This is more of just uh, cataloging, cataloging what I do for myself and to, like, and to show people that it's easy to do. I mean, the first thing I say on that thread is, let me start by saying I'm not a gearhead at all. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. I, I'm not at all. I, I sit at a desk. I process coffee orders. You know, I do some other stuff with the work that we have uh, going on, uh, you know, overseas. But that's what I do. I'm not working with my hands every day. So if if I can apply myself and and learn to do all this starting from pretty much zero, any I I feel anyone can. And and that's just what I'm trying to do is just trying to help motivate and encourage people to you know maybe learn a new skill set. Absolutely, man. Well, I appreciate you being with us here today, man. Hey, oh, it's been awesome, Jack. Like I said, I love the show, love what you do, love the community, and uh, it's it's just been a great experience overall, and I'm glad we could do this interview. And, and let me say, as someone who topped up my cup at least once while we were doing this interview today, uh, thanks for a discount on a great pro- uh, product in my Thai coffee as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. We're happy to provide that. Uh, you know, people, if you're not in the MSB, we're not the only ones that give a discount. Join MSB. Uh, there's a ton of stuff back there for you. And if you're a coffee hound like me, that, that one discount will pay for your, your annual dues alone. <laughs> anyway, Matt, man, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, absolutely, Jack. Have a great one. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Matthew Miller helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.